Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. My name is Brian. Great to have you along today. And uh, with me is Jeff. Jeff, how's it going this morning? So far, so good. Looking forward to another uh, interesting uh, exploration of uh, one of the uh, topics of God's Word. Yeah, we're, we're now going to be starting a series on a very important subject of Calvinism. So for a few episodes, we're going to talk about this network of doctrines because it really is kind of a network these days. But, you know, we want to talk about this because it's such a damaging false doctrine that if you really look at it, has permeated almost all the religions in the world today. And because it's such a dangerous doctrine, because it's so commonly believed when people say things like, well, now that I've been saved, I'll always be saved by the grace of God. There's nothing that I can do to fall away. God's preserving me and so on and so forth. Well, people that make statements like that are really talking about some of these major tenets of Calvinism. So Jeff, we want to kind of embark on this to help our listeners understand, and I guess more importantly, to recognize that this is a false doctrine that can be very damaging. And if they're part of a denomination, it's really interwoven into their core beliefs. True. And my understanding is it's not limited to a particular denomination per se, but in one form or another, a lot of what we might call Protestant denominations uh, reflect, uh, as we said, you know, either Calvinism as a whole or some of the tenets to, you know, one degree or another. So it is a, a very uh, broad and, and far-reaching uh, topic that we want to spend. And honestly, I don't know how many episodes we'll have, but uh, at least a few to kind of give people, you know, clarity as to what it is, what it means, where it comes from, and more importantly, what the scriptures have to say. Yeah, and I guess that's the good news, is that it's a pretty easy false doctrine to refute when we compare it to God's Word. And so as we've talked about in many episodes, we always encourage you to take anything we say, compare it to God's Word, but most importantly, let God's Word be the authority on this subject and not something that men think. Uh, So Jeff, I'll uh, let you kick things off. Okay, so I think what we may do, at least for starters, is give people a little bit of historical insight First of all, into who uh, John Calvin was, uh, since you know, his name is associated with this uh, network of doctrine. And then, Brian, I think you'll give our listeners some insight into his main uh, opponent or his main opposition. And then we'll kind of get into more details after that. So, for starters, John Calvin, um, born back in the 1500s, uh, lived from 1509 to uh, 1564. Uh, was an important French theologian uh, in the middle of what has come to be known as the Protestant Reformation. Uh, In fact, if you remember Martin Luther uh, posting his quote-unquote 95 theses uh, on the, you know, door, I think it was Wittenberg, or I could be off on that, uh, of the uh, church building. Uh, So when he did that in 1511, Calvin was eight years old, so you kind of get a, a sense of timing there. Uh, historically, it looks like he studied humanities and law uh, in France, eventually settled in Geneva, um, although eventually he was exiled from Geneva. He and his followers were suspected of wanting to create a new papacy and control various religious aspects of the city, and yet later he was invited back to Geneva, I guess by the Protestants, who had become more popular uh, in his absence. Evidently, he uh, published several revisions of his studies that are called Institutes of the Christian Religion. Uh, He also began his programming of uh, reforming the organization and doctrine of the church. Uh, One of those doctrines uh, turns out to be something called total depravity, uh, which denied man's free will, kind of formed the basis of the other four major tenets of what we now know as Calvinism. Uh, but as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. Turns out that his views or, or theories of total depravity could be traced as far back as back into the uh, first millennium uh, after Christ's death, you know, a thousand plus years into the past, to a person by the name of Augustine. And it was uh, Augustine, the best we can tell, who originally came up with uh, some of these 
tenets or some of these ideas that uh, Calvin eventually believed in, uh, embraced, and got associated with his name. So there you go, kind of a really brief, brief history, 1500s in the middle of the Protestant Reformation. Brian, I'll toss it back at you. Yeah, so as you mentioned, you know, this Augustine, uh, you know, some of the Catholic Church referred to him as St. Augustine. He was a bishop. He had these false doctrines that Calvin sort of ran with, for lack of a better term. And then Calvin had an opponent by the name of Jacobus Arminius, who was somebody who said, well, I believe in some of that, like original sin, but I disagree with the other tenets that you, uh, and, and specifically Calvin's followers, ended up formalizing. And so when you think about this guy that was his opponent, Jacobus Arminius, he was born also in the 1500s, around 1560. And at age 15, he went to study theology at the University of Leiden in the, in the uh, Netherlands. Uh, he remained there till 1582. And then he had a teacher, I guess a very influential teacher in theology, that also believed and taught that what was known then as high Calvinism made both God a tyrant and an executioner. So think about how condemning that is of our great God. But under this influence of this teacher, Arminius studied and began to question some of this quote-unquote reformed theology of John Calvin. So Jeff, you touched on earlier Martin Luther and his 95 Theses. We know that Martin Luther was protesting some of these false beliefs from the Catholic Church, like the selling of indulgences, right? The selling of the forgiveness of sins and all of these things. Well, there was, you know, I guess the very name Protestant, right, tells us that there were several that were protesting all of these false doctrines, really, that conflicted with God's word, that all these false doctrines that had been introduced, because they knew enough about the scriptures to know that some of these things that were being taught, like once again, you know, somebody could pay a, a sum of money to have their sins forgiven was not in the scriptures. And so, you know, when you think about Jacobus Arminius, he also started questioning some of these theologies of John Calvin that came from Augustine. And then as he continued his studies, you know, he did defend some of those doctrines, like, you know, Calvinistic, we'll talk about predestination as one of the tenets. But he started questioning his own religious roots and his own theological positions. And as we continue on, we'll see that he introduced some variations on these, what we call five tenets of Calvinism. So not to give all of the history of Arminius, but he did begin to teach in the Reformed or what's called the Presbyterian churches in the Netherlands. And then after he died in 1610, a year after his death, he had uh, some followers that were known as the Remonstrants, where they drew up five statements of doctrine in which they set forth their views, which were based on his views. And, you know, in, in the autumn of 1618, this General Synod, which is a religious council of the Reformed churches, was called to consider these statements of the Arminians. And so, you know, they basically considered them, um, and after much deliberation, these five statements of doctrine were declared to be contrary to Scripture, and they were rejected. And uh, in answer to these statements, this another great synod of Dorderect set forth five doctrines of their own, which, quote-unquote, they considered to be scriptural and confessional, or a scriptural and confessional answer to the position of the Arminians. So not to confuse our listeners too much, Jeff, but in essence, you had, you know, these, these five tenets of Calvinism from this Augustine of Hippo that were, were this Arminius disagreed with. His adherents came up with what they thought were the five tenets. They were rejected. These, you know, Calvinists, if you will, came up with what they said they felt the truth was based on God's word. And so, you know, when you look at, well, today, right, even though the theology of Calvin was accepted by these Reformed churches, so you'll see that in the Presbyterian church, uh, and really most other Protestant groups, not everyone accepted its basic tenets. And why is this important? Well, because years later, somebody named John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist church, embraced this Arminian theology, and really became its its most prominent champion. 
you have these two kind of competing views, if you will, uh, of the scriptures starting to be formulated and churches now starting to grapple with these two competing or conflicting because they are definitely conflicting. And, you know, you, st- you mentioned uh, Wesley. Yeah, several years later, there's a person by the name of John Wesley, uh, as you said, who was basically the, the founder of the Methodist movement. So he uh, started, you know, liking the Arminian view uh, and didn't really, you know, not like the, uh, the Calvin, Calvinistic view. Uh, and so, at least from his perspective, you may find like the Methodists uh, tend to embrace the Arminian theology. Uh, and, you know, rejecting the Calvinistic, and really the Methodists and maybe a few other mainstream denominations uh, are more devoted toward, you know, Arminianism, which we'll get to in in a few moments here, uh, and reject uh, Calvinism. Now, we've been talking about these two main views, and we've been talking about five tenets, and I know we're probably on the verge of confusing our audience, but I think, Brian, what we need to do here is pause for a moment, and talk about these five different aspects. So in, in kind of a summary manner, what, what some people came along is summarize the five, at least from the, the Calvin perspective, with the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Each of those letters referring to one of the five uh, tenets of Calvinism. T standing for total depravity, U standing for unconditional election, L standing for limited atonement, I standing for irresistible grace, and finally P standing for perseverance of the saints. Let's go back and review that real briefly. So T, total depravity, basically is the view that human beings are so, you know, impacted by quote-unquote original sin, you know, what Adam and Eve did, that they are always sinful and have no ability whatsoever to even choose to be good. Total depravity. You, or unconditional election, says that, well, since human beings have no free will, then it's totally up to God to choose some to be counted as righteous, just based on who he wants to pick. L, or limited atonement, builds on top of that, by saying, you know, only those whom God has particularly chosen or predestined uh, to be saved really can be saved by Christ's redeeming work. You know, the, the, the Jesus' atonement is basically limited to those predestined to being saved, and the rest are going to be lost. I, or irresistible grace, again, if human beings are, you know, so wicked, sinful, you know, from birth, then it is only through God's grace that he extends to human beings uh, and enables them to have faith that this choice by God cannot be refused by man because, hey, it's God's choice. It's, he's foreordained. His, his grace to his selected individuals is irresistible. And finally, P, perseverance of the saints. Since God has arbitrarily picked you, if, if you're one of the picked ones, uh, and since they cannot resist his grace, then they are unconditionally and hence eternally secure. Perseverance of the saints. Sometimes called once saved, always saved. T-U-L-I-P. So all of that's related to the five tenets of Calvinism. Now for each of those, there is an Arminian counterpart. So in opposition to total depravity, you know, Arminianism says, well, yeah, human beings certainly do tend to be sinful, uh, certainly cannot be righteous on their own, but they can, by God's grace, have freedom of will and can choose to obey. In distinction to unconditional election, uh, the Armenian position is conditional election, that all humanity can be righteous, and yet at the same time, God has called us, called all humanity to respond to his grace, and that we can respond when we exercise our free will. In distinction to limited atonement, the Armenian position has unlimited atonement. 
which basically says when Christ died on the cross, his redeeming work, that is available to anybody and everybody and all who voluntarily choose to obey, choose to be saved. In contradistinction to irresistible grace, or the I, part of the tulip, our Armenian position is resistible grace, that God's grace is free, it's offered, but man still has freedom of choice, can still refuse to avail themselves of God's grace. In other words, they have a choice in the matter. And finally, in distinction to perseverance of the saints, or once saved, always saved, uh, the Armenian position is that of, yes, indeed, there is a sense of assurance and security that the believer can have, but it's conditional. It's based on the believer's ongoing faithfulness, that we can still reject God, and if we persist in that rejection, ultimately, we will be lost. So, Calvinism, five tenets, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints, all wrapped up in the word tulip, in contradistinction to Arminianism, where, yeah, humans are sinful, but they do still have free will. They can choose to respond to God's grace, that Jesus' blood is effective to any and all who do respond uh, to his grace. And that salvation is a matter of continued faithfulness. So obviously, Brian, you know, very, very two almost uh, diametrically opposed perspectives. Um, the other thing I might add as we kind of wrap up this particular section is what we try to portray is pure Calvinism and pure Arminianism. Uh, that over time... Um, those two very distinct positions have become somewhat blurry. Uh, for instance, you know, some Calvinists, instead of being quote-unquote full-blown Calvinists, have softened their views to some degree and may accept, you know, just certain aspects of TULIP. Uh, and likewise, many Armenians have kind of softened their perspective and over, and over time have adopted some of the various aspects of Calvinism, like one saved, always saved. So, two primary views you know, with some variation between, depending on who you talk to. Uh, Brian, uh, thoughts before we move on? Yeah, I appreciate you going through those in detail. And I do find it a little ironic that when you look at John Wesley's beliefs, it almost completely matches up to what the Bible teaches, with the exception of deprivation, right? And that human beings are sinful and cannot be righteous on their own. But yet he mentions grace and free will. And then you look at, you know, conditional election and unlimited atonement and all of that, that matches up with what God's Word says. However, uh, our listeners might remember we were talking about this great synod that looked at these five doctrines of the Arminians and said that they, con they are contrary to Scripture, and they were rejected, and that's what caused them to come up with you know, John Calvin's five tenets of Calvinism. Well, John Wesley's is a whole lot closer to the truth than John Calvin's, and so you know, ultimately, it's what the scriptures teach. And to your point, Jeff, when you look at today, there are so many different religions. So it's not just, you know, Presbyterian and Baptists and Methodists and so forth. We have a lot of community churches, all faith churches, which do, in fact, believe in some tenets of Calvinism and some tenets of Wesleyism, if you will, or the, you know, the Arminian beliefs. So ultimately, we just want to see what God's word says and, and understand the, this false doctrine enough to be able to recognize it if it's being taught to us. Right, and I think that's a good point because, you know, so far as I was talking, you know, I was kind of describing, oh, we've got these two things. We've got chocolate and we've got vanilla, right? And I wasn't really saying anything in terms of what the Bible has to say. And, and I appreciate you, you know, kind of bringing that to the forefront. Uh, you know, it's not that we believe in Arminianism. It's not that we believe in Wesleyism. It's that we try to believe the scriptures, and as you said, where Wesley wound up, where Ar Arminius wound up, certainly is a whole lot closer to the truth uh, than where you know Calvin and, and Augustine uh, wound up. But even with Arminianism, there there are a few things in there that that don't just quite totally align with scripture, but certainly aligns a whole lot better with scripture than what we would call uh, Calvinism. Yes, and you know both of these are really 
um, the, the foundational aspect of both of these beliefs of men uh, are centered around the concept of original sin. So let's talk a little bit about original sin. What does that mean? You may have heard the term. Well, really, simply it means it's just a belief that mankind inherited Adam's original sin, and therefore all of mankind is inherently sinful. So therefore, some religions teach the need to be baptized as a baby, because, you know, if you believe that even an infant, all mankind that comes into the world is inherently sinful, then you can understand why you have some religions that teach the need to be baptized, for instance, as a baby, or they teach in, you know, their worship services and in their classes that we have a sinful nature. And so, you know, this original sin is very damaging uh, because of that foundational belief. And so what we want to do next is we want to just look at what some of these different denominations and even the Catholic Church have in their own doctrines. So for our listeners, you might be familiar with uh, our discussion in the past of creeds. So, you know, whether it's the Mormon Church and things like the Pearl of Great Price or the Book of Mormon itself, or, you know, when you think about, you know, Catholics and Methodists, many of them have written their own creeds and they almost all either add to God's word or change God's word. Um, and so we want to look at their own writings and say, okay, why are they promoting original sin? Why do they believe in that? And what is it that they do believe? So to start out with, we look at the Roman Catholic Council of Trent, which was also in the 1500s, like we've been talking about uh, for a lot of these uh, false doctrines. And here's what they say in the Council of Trent that was from 1545 to 1563. Adam's first sin has been transmitted to all his descendants. And then in a book or a creed called Questions of Catholics Answered by W. Hepst, here he says, Yes, every child born into this world has the guilt of original sin upon his soul. Original sin is the sin that we inherit from our first parents. Talking about Adam and Eve. Original sin excludes us from heaven unless forgiven. It is forgiven only by baptism. Hence, when an unbaptized baby dies, it cannot enter the kingdom of God. Hmm, interesting, right? Right. Well, and of course, within that context, the use of the term baptism is, is a little unfortunate because what they're really referring to is sprinkling a little bit of water, uh, you know, on the baby, on the infant. And certainly if you go to the scriptures and look at, you know, New Testament baptism, it's immersion, you know, of a believer and not just sprinkling water, you know, on an infant, which some people call mistakenly uh, baptism. Yeah, that, that's an interesting uh, perspective from uh, the Catholics, you know, born with the guilt of Adam's sin, which I basically sounds like, you know, not only for infants that are born, uh, but also infants that are aborted, you know, before they're born, they're lost, doomed to hell because of Adam's original sin. You know, we kind of see that continued uh, to be reflected in Lutheran thought. You know, we talked about Martin Luther earlier, protesting against Catholic Church, reforming some of their abuses, uh, which he was trying to do. Uh, but they still retained some, uh, a good portion, of Catholic uh, views, Catholic doctrines. Uh, at least according to the Augsburg Confession, uh, Article Number 2, quote, It is also taught among us that since the fall of Adam, all men who are born according to the course of nature are conceived and born in sin. That is, all men are full of evil lust and inclination from their mother's womb and are unable by nature to have true fear of God and true faith in God. Moreover, this inborn sickness and hereditary sin is truly sin and condemns to the eternal wrath of God, all those who are not born again through baptism and the Holy Spirit. So that's Lutherans, uh, Lutheranism uh, perspective of original sin, just like the Catholics. Yeah, and we see this introduction of hereditary sin, right? So we were talking about, you know, the tea and tulip is total hereditary depravity. 
And, well, this really defines it, doesn't it? It's just saying, you know, men are unable by nature to have true fear of God and true faith in God and born in sin and so forth. And so we move on now to the Methodists, and in their own creed, the Methodist discipline, they say, uh, since, I'll add, infants are guilty of original sin, then they are proper subjects of baptism, seeing in the ordinary way they cannot be saved unless this be washed away by baptism. It has already been proved that this original sin cleaves to every child of man, and hereby they are children of wrath and liable to eternal damnation. So I do think it's interesting here, Jeff, where both of the Methodists and Lutherans, well, even in Catholics, talk about baptism. And as you mentioned, they're not talking about immersion, but more importantly, you know, they recognize at a base level that baptism is necessary for salvation. But they're, you know, once again, tying it back to original sin, and that's why you have a need to be baptized. So anyhow, kind of shades of the truth, if you will. Yeah, good point. Uh, moving forward, uh, let's look at Pentecostalism. Uh, according to Statement of Fundamental and Essential Truths, Article 4, quote, Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. He fell through sin and, as a consequence, incurred both spiritual and physical death. Spiritual death and the depravity of human nature have been transmitted to the entire human race, with the exception of the man, Jesus. Man can be saved only through the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So now we have, you know, certainly Adam and Eve, you know, had consequences of both spiritual and physical death. And certainly we uh, have the ongoing problem with, you know, physical death as well. But that this spiritual death, this spiritual separation from God, this spiritual depravity, that's their term, of human nature, has been transmitted to the entire human race, including you and I. So that's sort of the, the Pentecostal view. Uh, very similar uh, to the others. Yeah, and I like how, you know, each kind of have their own twist, if you will, or spin, I guess you might say, where like we would agree with the first part, right? Man was originally created in the image and likeness of God. Well, yeah, we were told that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Uh, he fell through sin. Yep, that uh, that matches up with Romans 3.23, right? That we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. Um, and, but then, you know, they, they start talking about, you know, the depravity of human nature and being transmitted to the human race. So, you know, as we go along through this series, what we're going to say, is that true? Does that hold up to what the Bible teaches? And, uh, we see the Baptists kind of continue this same false doctrine when, in their Philadelphia confession of faith, where they say, quote, our first parents by this sin fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of the souls and body. The guilt of sin was imputed and corrupt nature conveyed to all their posterity descending from them by ordinary generation, being now conceived in sin, the subjects of death and all other spiritual miseries temporal and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free from the original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgression. So the Baptists, Jeff, kind of ratcheted up. They take this to total hereditary depravity, right, when they say, that we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to do evil. So now they're saying we're not only wicked, we not only inherited the sin, but we're not even capable of doing good and, in fact, are wholly inclined to do evil. That's, that's pretty powerful, isn't it, as far as a damning sort of doctrine, if you will? Well, it is because, as you said, it not only makes the infant, if you will, lost you know because they are by nature they've inherited the guilt of adam you know adam sinned okay so therefore each infant is quote unquote guilty guilty lost right not only that but as you said that they take it to the next level of, of the the whole nature totally incapable 
of doing anything for themselves, which is exactly what Calvinism, that's, you know, total inherited depravity, is sort of the foundation that says, well, you know, if you are totally wicked, well, there's nothing you can really do for your own service. I mean, you can't even believe, you know, you have no free will when it comes to, you know, accepting, you know, you're, yeah, I mean, you're, you're as black as black can be in, in terms of, you know, the blackness, darkness of, of sin. And hence, a lot of the subsequent tenets of Calvinism sort of naturally, logically flow from that. That if anyone's going to do anything about this condition, it sure can't be us. It has to be God. And hence, since some are lost and some are saved, it's up to God to choose arbitrarily who to save. Because everyone else is lost, by, you know, by definition. Anyway, so this concept of total inherited depravity, this concept of original sin, uh, is not only woven into a lot of these various religious denominations, but kind of serves as the foundation from which a lot of additional false doctrines come from. Yeah, and it's it's really scary. I mean, if you think about it, and hopefully, you know, as, as we read through these, our listeners have some red flags going up, right? You know, we talk about free will, and we often use the term free moral agents, and the grace of God, and so forth. What these false tenets are saying is that we're really just a bunch of evil robots, right? Where, you know, if God has chosen beforehand to save us, then we can't resist that. And, you know, the decision's already been made. So, of course, we're going to be righteous because God already made that decision for us. However, a fair number of you, in fact, most of you are died and doomed to hell. Nothing you can do about it. All you really want to do is evil. Uh, hopefully our listeners are going, well, wait a minute. I don't just think about doing evil all the time. I actually like helping other people. I like doing what's right. Well, once again, hopefully some of these readings, and to your point, Jeff, when you look at whether it's the Catholic Church, Lutheran, Methodist, Pentecostal, Baptist, and others, uh, we can see how, yes, it's permeated all those religions. Many people you know, just take what's taught and they don't necessarily study the truth to see that what is actually being taught is totally contrary to God's will. Um, so, you know, our hope in this series is to help everybody understand, once again, how to recognize this false doctrine, but more importantly, how to refute it from the truth. Because ultimately, if you have a discussion with somebody or you have somebody trying to tell you, oh, hey, you've been baptized, there's no way you can be lost now, you need to say, well, hang on a second, let's go to the Bible because it's conflicting and it's teaching, you know, the complete opposite of what you're saying. So anyhow, that's, uh, we wanted to just kind of lay the foundation, right, Jeff, about original sin and, and kind of the intent of this series of studies on TULIP, if you will. Right. Well, and as, as the point we're also trying to make is it shifts responsibility from being God doing everything he can to save us, but also leaving it up to mankind to respond via their free will, shifting it all on God. Mm-hmm. You know, it's up to God to make the plan. It's up to God to have you know Jesus die on the cross for remission of sin. It's up to God to pick whoever he wants to be saved. It's up to God to, you know, quote unquote, zot them with belief, the ability to believe and save them. And they're locked away, can never fall. It's all on God. It's all on God. Uh, which unfortunately leads a lot of people to say, well, if it's all on God, okay, I'm, I'm great. I got my ticket punched. I'm, I'm heaven bound. When unfortunately and sadly, they're, they're not. Yeah, it's, it's one of those false doctrines that it's just worth knowing about it so that, it, like you say, we, we can understand how it's our responsibility and not God's. So let's go ahead and move and answer a few questions, Jeff, that have been submitted about Really a kind of original sin, I guess you could say. I mean, as we go along for our listeners, just so you know, we're going to try and go through questions that sort of match the tenet that we're talking about. So, for instance, we were saying earlier about once saved, always saved. Well, once we talk about perseverance of the saints, and are we truly saved forever once we're saved, we'll look at some questions that uh, some of our visitors to our website at BibleQuestions.org have asked. And so, Jeff, this first question for Today's episode comes from Susan, and she says, Since Adam's offspring inherited sin from him, and we were in a sinful state before they were born, why couldn't God just excuse their sin since they hadn't actually committed any offense? That's a great question, right? And then she asks a couple other ones here. 
This was about justice, but couldn't God simply pardon Adam's future offspring under the circumstances and grant forgiveness? And then finally, if God had pardoned Adam's offspring, how would that have obstructed justice? So I, I give her credit, uh, Jeff. Susan sees something wrong, right? Right out of the gate with this idea of inherited sin. It's just like, wait, this doesn't compute. It doesn't make sense, you know? Right. Well, and, and I like the fact that she immediately recognizes that there's something inherently unjust about holding a person's children, grandchildren, great, 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 great grandchildren, <laughs> you know, thousands of years into the future, guilty for what I, as their original parent, did. And, and you know, in, in our sense of justice, you know, you'd be absolutely right. I mean, just because my great, 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 great grandfather committed murder, does that mean I'm guilty of murder? Well, duh, no. Right? And so I, I like the fact that she wraps this in, immediately can see, wraps it into the concept of what is just and fair. And so part of the response back to her would be that her question is kind of based on a false premise that Adam's offspring do not inherit the guilt of sin from him, are not in a sinful state before they're born. That, in fact, each person, and this is indeed just, that each person is born sinless, and each will be held accountable for their own deeds, not the deeds of their parents, not the deeds of their grandparents, not the deeds of their distant, long-forgotten relatives, not Adam's, but their own. And, and then, you know, let me offer for our listeners a, a number of passages they can look up that uh, kind of drive this point home. You know, starting off, if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, uh, chapter 18, a good portion of the whole chapter is dedicated to this concept of each is responsible for himself. Uh, quote, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Individual accountability. Matthew chapter 16, verses 27. Uh, referring to the judgment day. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Not the works of his parents, not the works of his grandparents, not the works of you know, Adam. Good works or bad works. Each according to his works. Romans 3, verses 11 and 12. Now this is an interesting passage because... It does talk about people's tendency to be sinful, but watch it carefully. Uh, beginning with, again, Romans 3, verse 11. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have altogether become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So if you kind of ignore the middle part, you know, none who, and just focus on the first and the last. Yep. Sinful, depraved nature. No one understands. No one seeks after God. No one does good. No one. But notice the verb tense. They have turned aside. They have become unprofitable. Not originally unprofitable, but they became unprofitable. Romans chapter 14, verses 11 and 12. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Not based on what my spouse might have done. Not based on what my kids might have done. Not based on what my parents might have done. Not based on what Adam, you know, countless thousands of years ago did. But what he has done, whether uh, account of himself to God. And very similar, uh, first, Second Corinthians, I'm sorry, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And finally, Revelations chapter 20, verse 13. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Again, judgment day. And they were judged 
each one according to his works. So over and over and over again, it's personal accountability, personal responsibility, according to what each of us have done, good or evil. Not our parents, or you know, not our children, not our spouse, not our parents, not the church in which we're a member of, not the country that we're in, not our distant grand, distant relatives, not Adam. It's it's on each of us. Brian, any uh, other thoughts? Yeah, you know, this idea of us being responsible, like you said, for our grandparents or great-great-grandparents. You know, I was thinking as you read that very first passage in Ezekiel chapter 18, God dealt with this exact issue, right? I mean, there was this proverb in Israel, we're told in uh, you know Ezekiel 18 verse 2, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Well, what were they saying there? They were saying, our fathers sinned and we're responsible for it. And verse 3, God says, as I live, says the Lord God, you shall no longer use this proverb in Israel. And then as you pointed out, Jeff, in verse 4, Behold, all sins are mine, the soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, the soul who sins shall die. So even thousands of years ago, certainly well before you know Wesley and Calvin and everybody else uh, thought of this false doctrine, uh, even the Jews themselves are trying to blame their, their ancestors for being held accountable for their sin, and God says no. That, that entire chapter, you know, God really spells it out, right? That each one of us is accountable for our own sins. Right. Now, you, you got close to a point, but you didn't quite make it, so I'll make it. There is a difference between being guilty of some ancestor's sin and suffering the consequences of some ancestor's sin. Mm-hmm. And certainly we would be the first to admit that, yeah, our... Parents, grandparents, distant, you know, uh, ancestors back up the road, and even Adam. In terms of consequences, oh yeah, we we in some ways always suffer the consequences of sin, but that does not mean we are guilty of the sin. That's right. Yep, and, and that's such a key point because the the two get confused, don't they? And to your point. The Israelites were confused. Yeah, they suffered consequences of their parents' sin. They were carried off into captivity, <laughs> right? Um, but but God just you know said, hey, listen, ultimately I'm going to judge you for your conduct. And so as we go through this series, that's going to become really apparent. And one other quick thing, Jeff, before we go to the next question, I think one thing that our listeners will also see, and you kind of alluded to this earlier, and that is that all of these doctrines stand or fall together. So if you can disprove original sin, you can disprove hereditary depravity from the Bible, well, the others kind of fall like dominoes because they are based on that original false premise of original sin. So Right. Yeah, like, like you, you, you kick out the foundation and the rest of the building just falls down, in a sense. Exactly. Okay. Okay, onward. So the next question, Brian, for you comes from David. It's kind of a lengthy one, so kind of bear with me. Basically, there's like three parts. He writes, I do not have any doubts on the fairness of God's judgments and his love for mankind. He just wants to answer better these following questions on God's judgment of Adam and mankind, which are often raised. Number one, if God created men with a sin nature, then it is impossible for men to live a perfect life. Yet God holds them accountable for their sins. Mankind does not choose to be born, does not choose to be sinful. They're just born that way. God ordains the sin nature and then punishes man for what he can't help. That seems to be like creating a creature with stripes and then punishing it for being good and fair or or whatever. uh, Or punish it for having stripes. That's number one. Number two, it may be fair to punish it. Let me try that one again. Number two. It may be fair to punish Adam and Eve. Is it fair enough to punish Adam's children? Number three, if God so loves, how could he banish all mankind in the name of Adam and Eve for all eternity because of one lousy mistake? Quote, unquote. There you go, Brian. You want to tease that one apart? Yeah, you know, I give David credit, much like Susan. Uh, David recognizes some problems with this, these false tenets of Calvinism. Uh, and really just talks about, is this really just? Is this really fair, right? And if you make, quote-unquote, one lousy mistake. Very fair question. So 
you know, God created mankind as a holy being and in the image of the Godhead, which is, you know, as we've talked about, God the Father, His Son, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And yet mankind on his own rebels and sins against God. So let's see what the Bible says to back that up, if you will, the statements I just made. Well, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, I find in what's interesting here, Jeff, is that you know, a lot of Calvinists really would even acknowledge this, right? We just read, you know, some denominational creeds that said that, hey, you know, God made us pure, right, in his own image. They'll acknowledge that. Uh, but what they won't acknowledge is that it wasn't just because of Adam's sin, but because of all of our sins that take us away from that image in which we are created. They want to pin everything on Adam, if you will. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 29 Truly, it says here, truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they, plural, have sought out many schemes. So it doesn't say here, but Adam sought out a scheme, and therefore he sinned, and now we're all guilty of his sin. No, it talks about each one of us, which sounds a whole lot like Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, right, where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So it's saying all of mankind, once again, leaves this image in which we are created by sinning. So God did not create man with a quote-unquote sin nature. This is really based on, as we've been talking about all along, this false doctrine of Calvinism and specifically depravity, right, or total inherited depravity. Uh, God created us, we see in many passages, as free moral agents, has given us the ability to choose whether or not we want to be obedient to his will. So like Mark 16, 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. Second Peter 3, 9 says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, Joshua 24, 15, Joshua asked the Israelites or made this demand, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. So that idea of choice, Joshua made clear. So, you know, if we are willing to repent, if we're willing to turn from our sin and be baptized, as we read in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, and then if we continue living faithfully, we see in passages like Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10 that we are promised a crown of life or eternal life. So all of those passages make it clear that it's based on our choice. Now, when we think about this, you know, Adam and Eve's child Cain, we see that he was punished because of his disobedience. Let's notice what God said to Cain in, in Genesis 4-7. Jeff, you want to read that for us, Genesis 4-7? Sure. Genesis 4-7 says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Yeah, notice here God says, if you do well. Choice. If you do not do well, choice. He says sin lies at the door, right? You should rule over it. Once again, says we have choice. So Cain had a choice to follow God and rule over his sin, but instead he was disobedient. And as a result, the sacrifice he offered, unlike his brother Abel's sacrifice, which was offered by faith, Cain's was not. And as a result of his disobedience, he was not pleasing to God. And so then after God rejected his sacrifices, when God made this statement saying, you know, if you do well, will you not be accepted? God was trying to reason with Cain. He was trying to help Cain understand. All you have to do is follow what I've asked you to do. Well, we know what happened after that, right? That Cain not only rejected doing God's will, but he became jealous of his brother and killed him out of envy. And of course, God justly punished him for this heinous crime. Now, you would have to ask yourself, well... If he inherited Adam's sin, he was incapable of doing good, then how is it that Abel was pleasing to God? Well, it's because he offered his sacrifice based on God, what God explicitly asked them to do by faith. So, you know, God is just and will judge each one of us based on how we have lived our life. As you just read, Jeff, 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us that, right? We all have to appear for the judgment seat of Christ and, you know, give an account, right, for what we've done, good or bad. We see a similar thought over in Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where it talks about, you know, in accordance with your 
hardness and impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. So in other words, it's because of our hardness and impenitent heart that there will be wrath, not because of Adam's. Verse 6 of Romans 2 says, who will render to each one according to his deeds. Goes on in verse 7 to say, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, what's there going to be? There's going to be indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish, it says, on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, which just means all of mankind. But notice verse 10, glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good. So, choice, right? Choosing to do good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then notice it finishes up in verse 11 by saying, for there is no partiality with God. So I guess, Jeff, at a base level, if you're saying that God has predetermined who will be saved, if you're saying that all of us are wholly inclined, not you, but, you know, these false teachers are saying that, you know, all, all we can do is do evil. That's all we're inclined to do. Then isn't that really saying that God is partial? because he has created us this way or allowed us to inherit Adam's sin and hasn't given us an opportunity to do anything but evil, hmm, that says partiality, doesn't it? It most certainly does. Now, you know, certainly we can see throughout Scripture where God sometimes will pick a person for some special mission. But when it comes to salvation, you're exactly right. It would indeed make God partial. It would make him a respecter of persons. It would say, well, God's just going to arbitrarily pick who he wants and leaving everyone else lost, well, <laughs> yes, it would make him exceedingly partial, <laughs> exceedingly a respecter of person, so to speak. Yeah, it's it's one of these things where the good news is we serve a just and impartial God who really allows us to determine our eternal destiny. And I think once we get through it this series, that'll be crystal clear. So, Right. Now, certainly, you know, we talked about distinguishing between the guilt of sin and the consequences of sin. And we certainly see within the scriptures and our own experience where certainly we suffer consequences of someone else's sin, uh, but we're not guilty of their sin. Uh, there's also this kind of aspect of sinful nature. And I think we could admit, if, if we're honest with ourselves, that yeah, we do have a tendency of being drawn toward evil. We do have that kind of inclination. Uh, it certainly seems too often to be easier to be bad than to be good. Uh, but that does not say that we are inherently, totally incapable of any, you know, goodness at all, that we're, quote unquote, born totally depraved. The other thing I'll just toss in here real quickly is I find it hard to, to fathom how you know people on the Calvinist side say that you know we're born totally depraved. Where does the spirit come from within man? Where does the soul come from within man? Yes, the body certainly comes from natural processes, you know, mother and father, whatever. But where does the spirit come from? It comes direct from God. So does that mean God immediately says this spirit is a bad, sinful, totally evil spirit? Well, that certainly doesn't make sense either, Brian, does it? No, it does not. And, you know, it's interesting. I appreciate bringing up the point about how mankind is inclined to do evil. And that's true. In fact, uh, James 1 talks about that. In verse 13, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So our inclination to do evil isn't because God's tempting us. It goes on to say in verse 14, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Hmm, interesting. So how are we enticed? Well, there's a lot of different ways we can be enticed, right? We might have friends that try to get us to do something. We certainly have Satan who knows each one of us and knows what might appeal to us. But as it says here in verse 14, ultimately, we are drawn away of our own desires and we allow that to happen, if you will. And then, of course, verse 15 says, then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. So to your point, Jeff, yeah, we, we can be inclined and are inclined, but it's through temptation. 
And that temptation is not from God, right? It's certainly from Satan, who wants to see us fail. And just our own desires. Oh, doesn't that look interesting? Lust of the eyes, right? Lust of the flesh, pride of life. Ooh, I'd like that. And much like Eve eating the fruit, you can be uh, enticed just through your own desires. Yep, good points. Now, admittedly, despite all of these verses that talk about personal responsibility, personal accountability, being judged according to what each of us have done while we're in the body, there is a verse or two that seems to indicate some sense of being born in sin or born sinful uh, that we want to at least acknowledge and kind of explore a little bit. And Brian, you know, to that point, what I'm thinking of is Psalms uh, 51, uh, verse 5, where David, uh, in that particular context, and I'm not exactly certain which translation I'm using here, says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Brian, I think uh, at some point you, you were pointing out to me that particular passage, at least in the NIV version, which is a little bit less of a word-for-word -word translation and a little bit more of a paraphrase, says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And so Brian, admittedly, a lot of people will look at that verse and go, Aha, aha, see, there you go. We're all born in sin, despite all the other verses that say otherwise. <laughs> So, yeah, if, if you look at Psalms uh, 51, verse 5, you know, it, it does, on the surface, appear to say we're born sinful, or at least David was born sinful. But here's, here's kind of the, uh, the, the, the broader view. If you look at the context of Psalms 51, especially verses 1 through 13, and look at the whole context of, of Psalms 51, we see David is really emphasizing and acknowledging his own sin, most likely in the case of Bathsheba, you know, seeking forgiveness and restoration. He uses very highly figurative language to make this point, uh, you know, to blot out his sin, wash me, uh, scrub me with hyssop. Uh, his sin was like, you know, I have broken bones. He wants a clean heart. Uh, so we get down to verse five. Well, first of all, we know he's not blaming his mother, right? In sin, my mother conceived me. Because, you know, he describes her in Psalms uh, 86, verse 16, as being God's handmaid, you know, suggesting she was a good person. And we know that, that David is not making some excuse by saying, well, he was, you know, conceived and born as a lost sinner with no free will. He certainly is not saying, hey, God, you made me this way. Or, hey, God, Adam made me this way. You know, he's, he's certainly not using that as a cop-out or as an excuse. Um, so what is he really saying in verse 5? Well, if you consider everything the Bible says on the subject, you know, David may simply be saying that he had this inclination or tendency or temptation to sin throughout his life. Brian, like you know, we were talking about a few moments ago, you know, that we humans you know, have free will, the ability to choose between good and evil. But as we've said, we also seem to have this tendency to be somewhat self-centered or selfish or self-serving that puts our will and desires at odds with, you know, God's will. And it is somewhat easier to be bad than it is to be good that we've mentioned, uh, especially when we're born into a sinful environment with sinful influences and certainly his mother and everyone else around him were sinners. And so in some ways he could easily learn it just like one learns the language, etc. And so maybe that's what David is ultimately saying in this verse 5 of uh, chapter uh, uh, Psalms 51. You know, not as an excuse, but maybe more as an admission and repentance of his own tendency to sin throughout his life. And so with that, you could easily bring that verse into harmony with all the other verses that say, hey, it's our own personal accountability, personal responsibility to take advantage of all that God has done for us. Brian, any thoughts on that before we move on? No farther thoughts on that, but I'll just encourage our listeners as we wrap up to, you know, listen to the, the upcoming episodes where, uh, as Jeff touched on earlier, we're going to talk about this tulip, you know, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And what's being taught in almost all religions today for these five points, 
And once again, comparing it to God's word to see if any of that's actually true, and if not, what the Bible actually teaches. So hope you come back uh, for the rest of this series. And Brian, you want to point our listeners back to the website for additional material they can study on their own if they'd like to? Yeah, so if you go to biblequestions.org, under the topic section, which you'll see at the top of the screen if you're using a traditional browser or if you're using a mobile browser, just uh, select the three-line button, and you'll see topics there. And uh, you can actually, even on our homepage, right, Jeff, we have an alphabetical index. Otherwise, you can see it under topics, and you know you can choose C for Calvinism and O for Original Sin. So certainly encourage you to take advantage of that and take a look at some questions that we've answered about this and other material uh, to help you with your studies. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered. And you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.